How many of you, yeah, that's good, Tower of London. How many of you woke up at 4.30 to watch the royal wedding? Five? I did. I was up at 4.30. Seriously. Drank a whole pot of coffee by 4.50. It was great. I'm feeling good. When I first started my Ph.D., I came in for the first year every morning at about 5. So I'm, it's, not that, it's not that bad. But um, it's not that good either. No, it's not. But it's not that bad. So uh, you're exactly right. No, it wasn't. Actually, I was surprised. I looked out the front window at about 4.30, and you know, 15, 15 home lights are on on the inside. I'm like, yeah, so all the women are up watching, and the men are still asleep. But I got up and watched because I wanted to spend time with my wife. She was watching. We had tea, we had scones, I wore a little princess crown, Betty. I did, I did. I did have tea and scones, I didn't wear the princess crown, but we did have them cut out just in case I wanted to wear one. So, see what we do, we have green food at St. Patrick's Day and I wear a princess crown on royal wedding days. See, what you don't understand, Pastor Bruzek, I was at, this was all one big deal, okay? Here's the thing. I woke up at 4.30 to watch this. Guess what we're watching at 2 a.m. on Sunday? Beatification of John Paul II. And I'm going to try to talk as much as Abby talked during the royal wedding. That's what I'm going to try to do. Can you see her dress? Can you see her dress? I can't see her dress yet. What color? Who do you think the designer is? I'm like, man, I have no idea. Can I get another cup of coffee? Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you asked. For those, yeah. Good, <laughs> yes, because you're smarter than the rest of us. If you had, If you had to classify that wedding as a modern wedding or a postmodern wedding? Those of you who saw it, what would you say? Yes, they were very old. Lots of these and thous betwixt. I always love that in the Book of Common Prayer. Representative of the mystical union betwixt Christ and his bride, the church. Or you, saw, you all saw Rowan Williams, right? The Archbishop of Canterbury, who looked like he'd rolled out of bed and didn't comb his hair. <laughs> Took his miter off. Classic Brit. His eyebrows are about this long. And uh, I'm like, man, I, 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 got I know there's a trimmer you can buy for that. He takes his miter off, and his hair's all screwed up. And yet, when he starts to speak, what do you notice? And he has a presence, right? He had a presence. Although the first words of his mouth are, uh, "You must give an account on the dreadful day of judgment." I'm like, is that a is that a reference to them living together before they're married? I don't know. So the vows were old. That's right. So that might give us a clue. What else did you notice about the wedding? S yeah, splendid. It was excellent. Exactly. The music was great. Uh, what? Give me some more. I want. Uh, well, give me some more here. Was it ancient or was it contemporary? A little bit of both. But if you had to give an overall classification, what would you say? Ancient. In fact, did anybody watch? Um, I don't know what channel you watched. I was flipping back and forth between the BBC and NBC Five. But did you notice uh, the commentators after the wedding, especially the women talking about her dress? How did they classify it? Very, very, what would you say? Sleeved. Sleeved, yes. It was sleeved, you, which you have to have to be in an abbey. That's right. So they were in the Westminster Abbey. She had to have sleeves. They also were a little surprised. I was, I was interested when the women started talking. Even the young women were surprised at how old the dress looked. I mean, an old by, I mean, ancient looking. It looked like it was, she called it retro. I would say more vintage, but uh, is that right, Ab? I'm thinking it's vintage, yeah. Had sort of a nice pearl tinge to it. Grace Kelly. See, I, Kate Bittlingmeyer, am I in touch with my feminine side right now? This is unbelievable. I was just going to say, was Eric up at 4.30 saying, that looks like Grace Kelly. No, she, no, he wasn't. 
So if you had to classify it, you'd say it was more ancient. And the liturgy itself, think about, um, think about even the vestments that were worn. Did that look ancient or modern? Very ancient. In fact, if you watch, well, yeah, they, actually they probably were. But if you watch even like the funeral of Diana, the vestments have much more of a 1980s or 90s look, right? So this was, if you could classify it this way, this was, as I said to Bruzic in the sacristy, the wedding was postmodernism on steroids. I mean, did you even know, did you listen to the guy's sermon, the Bishop of London sermon? It, well, what's the first thing he does in the sermon? He quotes St. Catherine of Siena. And he says, today is the feast day of St. Catherine, which it actually is. Catherine of Siena's feast day is today, and Catherine's getting married today. So the fact he quotes, you know, uh, really what is, you know, a mother of the church, an ancient mother of the church, in the very first line of his sermon tells you something. The other thing you noticed is he didn't say, now technology is booming and Google was all over. He didn't say any of that. The midpoint in his sermon, what does he say? He says, you know, the world is falling apart and knowledge can't fix it. Which was what? It was a slap in the face to rationalism. It was a slap in the face to modernism. And what did he say? He said, only love will change the world. But you notice what he said about love? Love is self-sacrifice. is found in the person of Christ. I thought it was a brilliant sermon. His only, you know, my only critique was, you could tell he was nervous, and he was going so fast. I'm like, slow down, man. <laughs> One, you're on national. You could, tell, you could tell he did a phenomenal job. He wrote a great sermon. It was concise. It was clear. And yet I kept thinking, just slow the pace. Everything was timed. In fact, she arrived about 32 seconds late. They probably said, shorten that bad boy. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be repeated tonight. Yeah. And the other, well, just, just think about the, yeah, you can watch it on YouTube. But even, even like the, the recession from the church when they got in the carriage, you know, like what carriage did they pick? The one from the 19th century. I mean, all that is just postmodernism on steroids. They wanted something ancient. What they wore was ancient. They had the full, you know, royal guard there. They had the liturgy that was ancient. They didn't go with like the 1970 Book of Common Prayer. They went with the one from 1846, with these and thous and betwixt and you know dreadful day of judgment. Oh, I thought it was great. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, right? So that was, if you want to envision what postmodernism is, that was it. That was it. And it didn't have any. You notice there was no band. <laughs> although it was very rich music, and you could tell that some of it was even formulated for that day. Although, did you notice what the little boys' choir sang when they went back to sign the register? Ubi caritas in Latin. Isn't that great? Ubi caritas, where charity and love prevail. It was great. So the whole thing was postmodern, and that's what, and here's the good news, that will, hopefully, if they can keep their marriage together, will redeem the monarchy, right? God save the queen. Amen. Okay. Um, <laughs> I go to school in Scotland, I gotta say that, right? <laughs> and I've been to Canada a couple times. Um, I like the, you know, here's the thing, I like the queen. I think, well, we don't need to go on record saying all that. I like the queen. Um, I have no idea where we're at. We may even be done with First John. I tried to pawn this thing off on Bruzek. He said, where are you? I said, I don't know. He said, then I can't do it. I said, okay, I'll do it. Are we done with First John? Good, then let's close with the Lord's Prayer and we'll be on our way. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> What's that? i got to go to the grocery store? Good. We're out of everything at our house. Um, okay, what I want to give you, because we did talk long and hard about 1 John chapter 5, especially the very end, 
we spent you know an hour and 10 minutes talking about sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death. So um, one of the most famous preachers of 1 John is St. Augustine, um, you know, 4th to 5th century. And he, in fact, preached a whole series of about 30 sermons on 1 John right around the time of the catechumenate. So these people were becoming new members, and he preached a whole range of sermons on the epistle to 1 John, and he basically goes verse by verse. You remember St. Augustine's method for preaching is very different than what you see today. His method was much like a Bible study. It was expository preaching. He'd start with the text, he'd tell you what the text said, and then he'd say amen. Um, and that probably worked in the 4th century, the 5th century. It doesn't necessarily work today. However, if you read his sermons, he gives great expositions of the text. Pastor, do you have one? Okay. So what I want to do, it's only two pages. Let's just let's read the text, and then I'll read the sermon to you, and then we can talk about it. Because I actually think he, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, okay, who's the man who's sinned that leads to death? Why shouldn't we pray for him? Is he really in the church? Is he outside the church? Remember, we spent a whole session talking about this. Augustine does a very good job in two pages of sort of summarizing what this person looks like. So let me read the text to you. And then we'll read the sermon from 1 John, and we'll just stop along the way or stop at the end and chat about it, okay? I'm in 1 John chapter 5. Chapter 5. Okay? That you may know. So that's the, that's the section heading there. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Remember I said his will is simply his name and action. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. All wrongdoing is sin. Oh, I'm sorry. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. That's the knowledge part, to know God. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So then, um, the sermon from 1 John. Let me ask you this, though. What was? How did we define last week the sin that leads to death? or two weeks ago, whenever we met, last met. Do you remember? One sin that leads to death is not having markers. How did we define sin that leads to death? Well, the easier one is sin that does not lead to death. How do we define that? Good. So you ask for uh, ask forgiveness. And, uh, and really, this is sort of relegated to, I'm going to summarize here, and I know it's not always the case, but um, you need to think of this as sort of having a bad day or normal course of life. This is what the confessions talk about when they say um, simultaneously sinner and saint. This is just normal life. Or, or as Luther said, you know, um, 
the, uh, you know, Luther says, drown the old Adam every day. He says, you've got to drown the old Adam because he's a damn good swimmer, right? <laughs> you like that, Betty? <laughs> In eighth grade confirmation, we always have a designated swearer, Betty. You want to be the designated swearer? No, okay. <laughs> All right. If you want to, I'll let you be there. We always find one person, one kid who can say hell and damn all the time. It's great fun. Yeah, he's exactly. These kids are saying it anyway. We're just trying to use it in service to Christ and his church. I, I'm not kidding. No, I'm not. <laughs> so if you want to be the designated swearer, you let me know. But back to, back to something more salutary, okay? Well, I could teach you some things. I didn't start swearing until I got to St. John and met Pastor Bruzek. <laughs> Ask my wife. As Bruzek often says, that river flows in the other direction. Okay? What are sins that lead to death? How did we summarize this? Remember, there were three things that sort of, and I know we got very systematic about it, but what were the three things that sort of indicate a sin that leads to death? I'm sorry? Uh, yeah, that would be the old, that was good. That was a summary, so we'll go like this. Yes. Premeditated, these are all summaries. Remember, it did three things. Yes, full knowledge, full consent, and obviously then breaks one of the ten commandments. Don't say words. We've never heard that before. <laughs> You haven't been around for a couple weeks, man. We've been having fun down here. <laughs> okay, breaks one of the ten words. Depends which group you got. That's exactly right. And then this, of course, is, um, you know, full knowledge and full consent basically mean even before it happens, you're unrepentant. And I told you the great example is somebody who says, I'll do it and ask for forgiveness later. Here's the thing. That's full knowledge, full consent, breaking the ten words. And your idea that you're going to somehow ask for forgiveness later shows some intrinsic amount of unrepentance. You really aren't concerned about the effects of this, right? So all of that, then, we said, would summarize sin that leads to death. And it's for this um, that St. John says, you cannot pray. I'll just say, uh, for one like this. Because he actually says, don't pray for the person. He doesn't say, um, you know, you can't pray for sins like that. He says, don't pray for the person who's done that. Okay? Now, let's listen to Augustine here, because I think he does summarize uh, very nicely what we've talked about. If you just look there, 1 John 5, 16 at the top. In Latin, he's got the verse, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, pray for him. If it leads to death, don't pray for him. Then Augustine. But what presses harder upon the present question in the Lord's command of praying for enemies and persecutors. Remember the Lord said, pray for your enemies, pray for your persecutors. What presses harder upon that is the saying of the Apostle John. Quote, if any man know that his brother sinneth a sin not unto death, he shall ask, and the Lord will give life to that man who sinneth not unto death. But there is a sin unto death. Not for that do I say that he should ask. End quote. For it manifestly shows that there are some brethren whom we are not commanded to pray for, whereas the Lord bids us pray even for our persecutors. So stop right there. You notice what St. Augustine has done? He said, this is a very strange thing about the text. Jesus says, pray for your enemies, pray for your persecutors, and yet he says, by way of the beloved apostle John, there are some people you shouldn't pray for. And because he uses the word brethren, brothers, those people are actually part of the church. 
Nor can this question be solved, except we acknowledge that there are some sins in brethren that are worse than the sin of enemies in persecuting. Go figure, the church could sin greater than a persecutor. That brethren means Christians may be proved by the many texts of Holy Writ. The plainest, however, is that of the apostle, which he puts thus, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified in the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified in the brother. For he has not added our, but thought it plain enough, when by the term brother he spake of the Christian that should have an unbelieving wife. And accordingly he says just afterwards, but if the unbelieving depart, let her depart, but a brother or sister is not put under servitude in a matter of this sort. The sin, therefore, of a brother unto death, I suppose, this is Augustine, to be when, after acknowledging of God, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, one fights against the brotherhood and is set on by the firebrands of hatred against the very grace through which he has been reconciled to God. You see what he means there? Basically, you rebel against forgiveness itself. Christians who rebel against forgiveness, which is the very simplest definition of unrepentance. It's rebelling against forgiveness. But a sin not unto death is when a person, not having alienated his love from his brother, yet through some infirmity of mind may have failed to exhibit the due offices of brotherhood. Basically, not full knowledge and not full consent. You should have known better, but you didn't. Wherefore, on the other hand, the Lord on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's not full consent and it's not full knowledge. Since they had not yet, by being made partakers of the grace of the Holy Spirit, entered into the fellowship of the brotherhood. And blessed Stephen in the Acts of the Apostles prays for them who are stoning him, because they had not yet believed in Christ and were not fighting against the grace of communion. Now let me just stop there. Do you see what he says here? He basically says the sins of pagans are in some sense not as great as the sins of Christians. That's for two reasons. One is Christians should know better. And two, the sins of pagans are usually just against one person. If I'm a pagan and Betty's a Christian and I steal 100 bucks from her, uh, you know, who is it that I've sinned against? Betty. If I'm a Christian and I sin against another Christian, who is it I've sinned against? The entire brotherhood. Remember, we did this with the woman at the well. You've sinned against yourself, against God, and against somebody else. And in fact, when you're a Christian, you've sinned against the whole community. That makes sense? The stakes are higher when you're a Christian. And that's why the sin is considered to be mortal and not simply venial. On the other hand, we're almost at the bottom of the page, the Apostle Paul does not pray for Alexander. And the reason, I suppose, is that this man was a brother and it sinned unto death. In effect, how would he sin unto death? By opposing the brotherhood in a spirit of hatred. So if you sin against your Christian brothers as a fellow brother, knowingly, with full consent, against the Ten Commandments, that sin can lead to death. If you're a complete pagan and you don't know any better, that's still a bad deal. However, it doesn't rise to the level of sins within the Christian community. Whereas for such as had not broken off the bonds of love, but had given way through fear, he prays that they may be forgiven. For so he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. 
of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. Basically, he sinned against me greatly. He knew better. He shouldn't have done it. Give him what he deserves. Then he subjoins for whom he prays, saying, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that he may not be laid to their charge. This difference of sins, this difference of sins, it is that distinguishes Judas with his treason from Peter with his denial. That's the paradigm, Peter and Judas. Not that to him who repenteth there is no forgiveness, lest we go against that sentence of the Lord in which he commands also to forgive the brother who asks his brother's forgiveness. But that the mischief of that sin is that the man could not submit to the humiliation of begging for pardon. What's Judas' sin? He couldn't beg for pardon. He couldn't ask for forgiveness. Why? What, what does it take to ask for forgiveness? Great humility, right? Great humility. And the opposite of humility is pride. St. Augustine would also say then pride is the first sin. Go down to the next sentence. For when Judas had said, I have sinned, and that I have betrayed the innocent blood, he went and hanged himself in desperation rather than pray for forgiveness in humiliation. Augustine claims it was easier for him to kill himself than to ask for forgiveness. Wherefore, it makes a great difference what sort of repentance God forgives. Your repentance actually matters. For many are much quicker than others to confess that they have sinned and are angry with themselves in such sort that they vehemently wish they had not sinned while yet they cannot lay down their pride and submit to have the heart humbled and broken so as to implore pardon. You ever met somebody like that? I've really done something bad. It really hurt a lot of people. But I can't go and ask them for forgiveness. It's just too painful. What Augustine claims is that is sin that leads to death because repentance is the key to unlocking life. Go down to the next paragraph. And this, perhaps, it is to sin against the Holy Ghost. In effect, through malice and envy to fight against brotherly charity after receiving the grace of the Holy Spirit. That sin which the Lord saith hath no forgiveness, either here in the world or in the world to come. For the Lord in saying to the Pharisees, whosoever shall speak an evil word against the Son of Man may have meant to warn them to come to the grace of God and having received it, not to sin as they have now sinned. For now they have spoken an evil word against the Son of Man, and it may be forgiven them, if they be converted and believe and receive the Holy Spirit, which when they had, which when they had received, if they will then have ill will against the brotherhood and oppose the grace they have received, there is no forgiveness for them, either in this world or in the world to come. You always know it's a bad sermon when people start coughing in the middle of it. That's the key. You know your sermon is going south when people start going, <coughs> just like all of you did as I was reading this. Uh, it's true. Not a bad sermon. It's just, you know, I should have found one that didn't have old English. But I had about 18 minutes because that's when Bruzik said, you're teaching. So listen, this is all I could do. <laughs> Isn't that right? Thank you very much. So with Augustine then, you can sort of explore a bit more what sin is that leads to death. Very systematically and broadly, you can say it's unrepentant or it's premeditated, which is just an easy way of saying 
It breaks one of the Ten Commandments. There's full knowledge, and there's full consent. Now, given what Augustine says, what else do you know about sin that leads to death? Where does it occur? With Christians, which is the very scary thing about this. This occurs only among Christians. Now, partly you know that because if you're a pagan, every sin you commit leads to death because you're outside of Christ. Your whole life leads to death. But with a Christian, the stakes are higher because you're, you're in the body of Christ, as Augustine says, and as the scriptures say, the stakes are higher, and this sin happens particularly among those in the brotherhood. What particularly does it look like within the brotherhood, according to St. Augustine? What does it look like? How would this play out in real time? Silence is never good. How does this play out in real time? Yep. Yeah, that would be down here. Yes. I want to go through these each one by one because I think there's stuff behind all of these. Let's just start up there at anger. What's the logical step from anger? I said this in my Monday thir Thursday sermon, and I think I went too hard, but if I had to preach it again, I would preach it very differently. But I talked about what happens with anger. What happens when anger, it's one thing to just be angry. It's another thing to be sort of continually angry, when anger sort of settles into the core of your existence. What happens at that point? It is like a cancer. So one thing happens with cancer is it'll kill you, right? Good. Good. Thank you very much. Who said that? Yes, it makes you, yes. Yes. And when you become a victim, what do you look for in other people? Same thing. You presume that everybody around you is a victim also, right? And if they're not victimized, then what happens? You feel, you go back to resentful, you go back to, the whole cycle just repeats itself, right? Exactly. This is what, you remember Pastor, yeah, it's, yeah, there's no stopping it at some point. This is when Pastor Bruzek so brilliantly talked about the circle of anger, and then we talked about the circle of redemption. This is the circle of anger, but it really does, it, it consumes you, it changes you, it makes you resentful. Eventually it kills you, and when it kills you, you look for victims in other people. You've seen this, where people are, they feel, and, and sometimes they are, but they feel so victimized, they then impose that victimization upon somebody else in an effort to bring them within their reach. And sometimes they do it even without knowing it, which is the saddest thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so this to death is both for you, yeah, and for others. So it'll do one of two things. It'll keep, it'll, it'll, uh, uh, let's see, it'll keep pagans out. And what will it do with other Christians? Push them out. And it'll push Christians out. Why would anybody want to be part of that community? We're not drawing anybody in. You're exact. Actually, that's that's well put. Um, yeah, that's well. I'm trying to think of another example in life where, actually, what you have on your face can either draw people in or repel people. I mean, you never see a, a clown who always looks bitter. Clown. Where did I come up with that? When, when do you hire? When do you hire a clown who has a? I want the bitter clown for my party. Yeah, exactly. The sad face. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I like the phrase angry for a reason. Let's we need to come back to that. Well, and you basically don't get a Yes, you do. 
Yeah. Exactly. Remember, we always talk about, you know, this is the church, here's Christ. You know, these are all the, all the boundaries of the church. You know, the ten words, you know, the Holy Supper, baptism, all these things, uh, prayer, basically the six chief parts of Luther's catechism sort of circle out then the Christian life. And you can come, you know, here, you can come here, you start to get darker and darker and darker. It's like people go to the, who go to the moon, you know, there's a time when it's like negative 120 degrees and positive 120, depending on where the sun's at, right? Or depending on where the earth is at and how it rotates. Same thing here, you can get so far away that you actually step outside and you're where? In utter darkness. And this then, sin that doesn't lead to death, doesn't lead to death, doesn't lead to death, doesn't lead to death, suddenly here you've got death, which shows what? Sin that leads to death can be one great sin or it can be lots of little unrepentant sins. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. That was your kid? That's your job. Okay. Find your spot and work your spot. Yes, right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you all know this from being around. I think one of the best examples or. or um, one of the best images used is that of cancer. Somebody said it. Um, you know, if you've ever been around somebody who especially just found out they have cancer, what's their life like and what's their family like? Utter chaos. In fact, I find going to the hospital for people who have just found out they have cancer, you know, they go to the hospital and they don't feel well and they get all these tests, and they call and say, we just found out he has cancer or she has cancer. Oftentimes, I go and my best pastoral care is not only to pray for the guy or pray for the woman put oil on him, my best pastoral care is to bring order to the room. And you almost feel more like you're in the middle of a circus than you're in the middle of anything else. Because chaos, chaos in their body, cancer, chaos in their soul, they're worried, chaos in the family, what happened? Nobody knows where to turn. You can see how this plays itself out in the church then. Someone has this grave sin, cancer, it's in their body, it's chaos, and what do they want? They only feel comfortable if everybody else is chaotic with them. And my job, and your job as Christians, is to bring order to the chaos, right? Make sense? Good. What else? Anything else at this point, the anger point? Yeah, Ab. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, it ultimately, you're most concerned about self. And that is the key then. I mean, most concerned about self. So then it, and for all sorts of reasons, you're fearful, you're scared, you're angry, you can see how all these things sort of revolve around themselves, and it must be, you can't just stop this. This sort of thing, this anger, this resentment, this cancer, it's like cancer, must be killed. It has to be killed, and the only way it's killed is with absolution, right? So it can't just go on. You can't just sort of suppress it because it'll rear its ugly head. Uh, I like this idea where somebody said it fights against charity. When you think of charity, what do you, what do you think of? Yeah, I think oftentimes that's what we think of. Money, food, you think of Christmas sharing, right? Yes, good. The Bible talks about love, and you give your love by giving of yourself. And you know the root for charity is karatas, which is also in Eucharist, right? It's also in Eucharist. So this idea of sin that leads to death actually rebels against the Eucharist itself. I, I don't know when it was, and I can't remember. Um, maybe it was Ash Wednesday. 
I preached a sermon, I think it was in the morning, maybe it was a Thursday after Ash Wednesday, in the morning at the morning Eucharist, where you know, I talked about the death of Jesus as the great anti-liturgy and anti-Eucharist. Because it's all those things turned upside down. And that's precisely what happens when sin starts to destruct the brotherhood, starts to destroy the brotherhood, right? It's anti-Eucharist, anti-love, anti-giving. You can't give of yourself. How about Holy Ghost? We don't talk a lot about the Holy Ghost. I did say that once in a sermon. I got lots of emails. I said, Holy Ghost is the forgotten member of the Trinity in Lutheran churches. Some of our Pentecostal Lutheran friends went ballistic. Uh, I'm really working here. I got no text to work with. I mean... We're first John, we're all done. I'm just like, you guys want some scones? We can go home. I mean, come on now. What do you think of when you think of Holy Ghost there? What are some other names for the Holy Ghost? Good. Comforter? <laughs> Holy Spirit? Good. How about other words? Think of your great Pentecost hymns. Who said that? Good. Paraclete, that's good. Oh, I didn't mean Pentecostal. I meant Pentecost. Did I say Pentecostal? Oh, I didn't mean, I meant Pentecost. Sorry. (laughs) My grandma was a Methodist. Okay. Paraclete. Somebody said something else. Dove. Yes, so he soars above the rest. How do I spell Yama Yama? Yoda. It's like like your daughter's birthday cake said Tam Tam. I'm like, Tam Tam? Hey, that's fun. Yoda. Happy birthday, Mammy. Okay. <laughs> I hope they're listening. I hope you are listening. Uh, I, yeah, believe me, that was intentional, okay? Mommy. Happy birthday, Mammy. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Yama Yama Sisterhood, what did you say? Something about the traveling pants? Let's just say voice of reason. Yes, uh, illumination is good. Yeah, we have to think about whether or not it's the exact same thing as conscience, although it certainly is invigorated. The conscience is, we'll write it down. Ah, yes, good, Donna. I can always count on you for a good confessions quote or a hymn quote. Thank you. Light divine. Uh, how How about the one where it says, anoint and cheer our much soiled face? Isn't that a good one? Anoint and cheer our much-soiled face. Come, Holy Ghost, our souls inspire. Uh, Anoint and cheer our much-soiled face. Right? Sorry? Yeah. (laughs) A lamb alone bears willingly. Yes, okay. Now think think about how, just think for a second, about how all the sins that are sins that lead to death are really the polar opposite of each of these things you gave me. Isn't that stunning? Which is why sin that leads to death, sin that's unrepentant, sin that's premeditated, which really means no intention of repentance, is ultimately, at the end of the day, fully and finally, a sin against the Holy Spirit. Because what you're saying is, I can do this on my own. Right? I can do this on my own. You ignore reason. You ignore illumination, darkness, all these things. If you have to think about, however... What people are most after in the world, this gets back to Leslie's point, what people are most after in the world today, it really is these sorts of things. Comfort. Counsel. You know, someone who enables them. Someone who shows them light. Someone who heals them. So the point of all that is, 
This is the great anti-evangelism. Make sense? This is a great. This is what sends people home. This is what brings people in. Okay, and this this all fits then fits in within uh, or under churching the world. Okay. Now we've talked a lot about that. Um, the question is, how do you and I help people? And I'm not going to say get people because get might be forced. How do you and I help people? who are here, and obviously they're Christians, they're part of the brotherhood, how do we help them get from here, from death to life? How do we help them? Which is really, in some sense, all that matters at this point. Right? I mean, you all know this is what leads to death, so here's the thing, don't touch it. But if people have touched it, how do we help them back to the light? Yeah. I don't know either. Boy, I don't know. I mean... That's very hard to say. Um, it's very hard to say. Part of the part of the pro, part of the trouble is, you and I don't always know who these people are. So practically, it's very hard to pray. It's very hard to pray in specific sometimes. Um, let's put praying aside for just a minute. Because here's part of the thing. Let's put, let's put it aside because too often the answer just is, well, we should pray for them, which really is a cop out. I mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter, but if that's all we're going to do, we should just go home and start praying, right? So let's, let's pretend that's not an option, partly because St. John says don't pray for them, and partly because we don't exactly know how because we don't always know who they are. But when we do know who they are, how do we help them out of this, Abby? Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, part of the trouble is you can, it, prayer can become very pietistic because prayer, when you, especially when you pray for people who are caught up in this, it usually becomes, like some prayers, I thank God I'm not like other men. Right? Yeah. That's how it can become. And sometimes it becomes that way just because we like to talk about their sins. Go ahead, Kate. Yep. Good. Agreed. And that's why I wrote up here, you said it, angry for a reason. So let me put a question mark here. What's the reason? What troubles you? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Oh, Lord, yeah, right. I agree. Most people will avoid it because avoiding it is easy, or at least easier. It's not easy because you still have the pain of knowing someone is hurting themselves, um, but most people do avoid it because it's hard to engage that, right? Janet, did you have something? Good. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe you. Yeah, right. Good. So... Uh, Let's keep going now. You said time. That presumes you're willing to listen. Listen without judgment, meaning you're not going to jump to conclusions, although there might be a third point here, which means you're willing to tell the truth. Because sometimes it's easy. Sometimes we do get to this point. We get to right here. We say, what's cooking? I got an hour. What's cooking? I'll tell you the whole thing, and you say, wow, that sounds bad. I'll pray for you, which means you're back to square one. Without saying, wow, you seem very hurt. Did you ever think maybe it was this that hurt you? Or maybe you shouldn't have done that? Or, gosh, it sounds like it sounds like you knew that was bad for you and you did it anyway. Why did that happen? Or, gosh, you broke one the Lord says come to church. Why did you why did you not wanna what's cooking? And then the natural progression is when you go to truth, when you tell somebody the truth, 
in order to be reconciled then, Matthew 18. You also have to then be willing to go face to face with somebody else. Or at least you have to be willing to say to them, what's best for you is to go and talk to that person. And this is where, I'll be honest with you, time, yeah, you've got to make the time, that could be hard. Listening without interrupting or without judgment, that might be a little more difficult. Tell them the truth, that's very hard, especially if it's somebody you love. Um, it's like telling your kids the truth. It's like telling your spouse the truth. That's just, you know, that's hard to do. And then the really hard part is, yeah, it's easy to sort of then tell them the truth once you've gotten through all this, but then to say, gosh, Dan, what's best for you is to go and talk to Betty. Because you know what she doesn't want to do is talk to anybody. You're lucky she's talking to you. And it's going to be very difficult after you've listened and given some wise counsel, in some sense a judgment, then to say, go talk to Betty. But we have to be willing to do it, right? Yeah, so the trust... Whoa, 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 hey, hey. <laughs> trust might come right here. None of this happens without it. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. When people are caught in, or when people have fallen into sin that leads to death, it's, it's almost always those people who have the most, who have the deepest bond of trust with them who are unwilling to talk to them or listen. It's easy, if I don't know you, to say, I'll talk to her. It's very difficult for Kate, who knows you very well, to say, let me talk to her, right? She's hurt us deeply, let me talk to her. That's hard. Because what, what are you risking, Kate? You're risking friendship, yeah, relationship. Oftentimes it's more extended than just that one person. And you're also risking your own reputation. Because here's the thing, best case scenario is, you tell them the truth, they say, thank God for telling me I'm going to go square that up. Worst case scenario is they say, forget about you, I'm not talking to you ever again, and they go out and tell all their friends, you wouldn't believe what Kate Fittling-Meyer said to me. So suddenly then, your reputation is hurt, your friendship is hurt, and your overall relationship with them and their friends is hurt. And that's a risk. But here's the thing, it's like saying, I have a huge pain in my side, but I'm not going to the doctor. It's a risk, they might say, you're going to die. But you never know, and you're never going to get better unless you actually go, right? What else? Yes, Carol. <laughs> uh, you would only touch it. Yeah, the Vatican has a special office for this called Exorcist. <laughs> yeah, because everybody thinks they can do this. <laughs> no, the, and this is, this is the point. The point I was going to make when you asked the question of how do you do this without touching it, you do this by speaking truth, and the ultimate truth is what? Christ and his word. What happens is people are not prepared to do that. They don't know it, or they don't have the guts. Well, sometimes they have the guts, but they say the wrong thing, or they don't know it. You know, you get it. Or Christ and his word, or they're not willing to take the, the risk, which is why my next point would be you yourself can't do it in most cases. And here's the thing, inevitably, if this works the way it should, not everybody is going to be restored. Well, that, that's part of it. Because remember how he, starts off his, uh, how he starts off the epistle, which is there are some of you who are children, there are some of you who are adults, there are some of you who are wise men. And he sort of says, wise men, talk to the young kids. Young kids, listen to the wise men. People in the middle, bring them together. So his whole epistle starts off with this idea that there is order and there is, in some sense, 
rank is the wrong word, but there's this hierarchy in the church where old men should be counseling young people. And so, you know, who's he writing to? Brand new catechumens who are young people. What's he saying? You might not be right for this, but you're going to see it happen. Don't pray for them, because if you pray for them, you're not going to know what's cooking, and you're going to get caught up in all of this. Kick it up a notch, elders, and really they should kick it up a notch, wise men. Who do you expect to be the wisest people? It should be people who have been in Bible study, in church, and your pastors. That's who it should be. I think you make a good point, though, Leslie, which is um, often what happens when you talk to people and you say, wow, your friend seems to be way over here. The response is usually one of two things. They either don't see the darkness, and they say things like, that's really mean to think that my friend's in the darkness. They come to church every week. They can't be in the darkness. We presume that this means all-out pagan trying to destroy the church when St. John says, hey, these people are Christians. The other thing is, we not only don't see it, we don't calculate how powerful this darkness is. So what do we do? If we do see it, we say, I can handle that. Let me, I'll take them out for coffee. It's going to be okay. We get them out for coffee, and by the time you've had your second latte, you're caught up in the risk, the truth. Ah, oh, gosh, I was going to say that, but I don't want to ruin a friendship. And, oh, man, I don't know if I can tell them the full truth. And all of a sudden, you leave, and what happens? They're dark, and you're dark. Make sense? This is how it spreads. This is how it spreads. And so what has to happen is it has to stop spreading, and then we need to kick it up to the experts, which is, Help people come from darkness to light. My, the point I was going to make was, if you do this well, there's always risk involved. And the ultimate risk is you're going to lose folks. And this is what I said on, on Monday, Thursday, which is, how do you deal with your losses? You can deal with them one of two ways. Gratitude. What would gratitude say about losses? Gratitude would say, hey, we lost some folks. However, the community on a whole is more light than darkness. The other option is resentment. You yourself then become angry. Pastors not, must not have you know, handled that very well. You yourself then are consumed by it. It changes you. You become resentful. Guess what? Suddenly, this is you. See how this all works? This is why evil and darkness is so very powerful. And this is why light is so very important. And so here's the thing. The good news is we're done with 1 John. <laughs> the other good news is it's good we're done with 1 John because at some point, you know, I always say we're not going to talk about this anymore, and we're really not, although the text talks about it. So at some point, you do have to honor the text. Um, and you can't force the text to say something it doesn't say. The good news is this right here is the minority. This is very much the minority. I don't go on a Sunday morning and say, gosh, everybody is here. In fact, how do you know that? Are people happy, sad, or angry on Sundays? I think they're extraordinarily happy. And I, whoever said you can see it on their faces, you can tell. 5%, 2%, who knows? When this used to be, gosh, lots of people are caught up in this in some way or another, I don't think that's the case. However, the Lord doesn't just want 95% of the people out of here from darkness to light. He wants every last person. So that's our task. So if you know it, we've got to help people through that. And the way you can help them best is, as St. John says, kick it up to an old man and let him work with it. Okay? Anything else? See what your son has to look forward to in Canada? You can just send this lecture to him and say, you sure you want to do this? Heck yeah, man. Canadian. That's why I said God save the queen. He's going to pray that in the TLH hymnal every week. There's that little thing in there for God save the queen or king.
Okay, is everybody okay? Here's, here, I mean, here's the good news. The good news is you're all in the light. The good news is you know the light. And the good news is this congregation, a super majority is in the light. So let's keep moving, right? Let's keep going. Um, I don't know what we're going to do next week. Probably won't be first, John. Yes. Well, I think your first step, yeah. Rule number one is none of this happens by force. So here's what you shouldn't expect, that if you come to me and say, I got a list of five people who are in the darkness, I'm going to somehow be able to strong arm them into coming in. It ain't going to happen. However, this is where an established relationship is actually very important. And this, this is quite telling. If you have trust with them, if you spent time with them, if you've listened before to them, you should be able to say to them, go talk to the pastor. Now, they have one of two options. They can say, thank you very much, or they can say, over my dead body. Now, here's, let me tell you something. That should reveal something about your friendship. And that's what we often miss. We say, oh, my friend's upset. Actually, if this is the way the Lord sets up the church as a brotherhood, and you get to this point and they say, over my dead body, guess what? Maybe they weren't your friend. Yes, it does. Right. And they actually believe it. Yeah. Happy Easter. It actually, it is. It's very happy. It's a, it's a fresh start. It's a fresh start. And Sunday is a great text, the Emmaus text. That's why I didn't read it this morning. I was going to, is that what you're preaching on? Is that Emmaus this Sunday? Oh, okay. I should have read it then. Oh, Thomas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Put your hands in my side. That's interesting. Thrust your hand into my side, the Greek says. Thrust. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.